Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Institute of Art and Ideas. Articles, videos and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. We value the feeling of happiness above all else, but is it time we outgrew this self-centered ideology? On today's episode, we're discussing happiness and the future of our society. Joining us to share his vision for a post-liberal society is renowned theologian and president of the Center of Theology and Religion at the University of Nottingham, John Milbank. But uh, a certain group of people have very deliberately set out to dominate the narrative. And these are the people who are known as neoliberals. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to John Milbank. I'm here to um, talk to you uh, about post-liberalism. The first thing I think that it's important to say about post-liberalism is the stress on the word post. It doesn't exactly mean anti-liberalism. And I think now we are faced with a big anti-liberal reaction. It's much more trying to say that liberalism as such is not enough. Well, what do I mean by liberalism? Um, For the purposes of this talk and my political philosophy, I'm defining liberalism as a political position that, that wants to start with the isolated individual, the isolated, atomic, abstracted individual. Um, not considered in their relationality or their historical situation uh, and so on, but treats the individual as basic. And from that follows, I think, two alternative values which can get combined. First of all, the idea that you're promoting as far as possible the liberty, the freedom of choice of the individual, or else to refer to the talk's title, Um, the idea that you're trying to promote the happiness of the individual. But happiness of the individual in a rather kind of basic, um, sort of sensuous, uh, materialist, um, utilitarian sense. So on the one hand, we've got what philosophers call negative liberty, freedom of choice. On the other hand, we've got happiness. And both of those things have course are very important but are they enough are they sufficient and i would want to suggest that in fact um this hasn't always been the dominant position even in modern politics liberalism hasn't had it 
all its own way. And that besides the importance of emancipation, that means freeing people from oppression of their uh, just liberties, freeing people from unnecessary suffering. There's also been a pursuit of much more positive ends, ends of community, group identity, national identity, educational goals, even religious goals. And these have always been part of the modern story. And these have tended to go along with promoting relationality and with promoting the strength um, of groups. And often the story of um, the, the rise of the working classes, the increase in the strength of working classes has been as much to do with these positive goals as with the, the negative ones. It's been about community and solidarity, uh, advancing certain very, very strongly held um, working class um, values. So liberalism was never simply the whole story. But I think that um, ever since the roughly speaking, the 1970s, we've um, started to think that it is the whole story, is that, that we can identify modernity wholesale with liberalism. And exactly why is that? Well, I think part of the answer is that there's nothing accidental about this um, whatsoever. Um, but uh, a certain group of people have very deliberately set out to dominate the narrative. Um, and these are the people who are known as neoliberals. There's an American version of neoliberalism, but perhaps the most basic and dominant version was an American, uh, was an Austrian, sorry, and um, German version. Now, what does neoliberalism really mean? Well, what distinguishes it mainly from traditional liberalism is the idea that um, it's not enough to just kind of remove the power of the state and then automatically you'll get free market values. It's much more the idea that we need to set up a deliberate set of laws that put the market first and put individual liberty um, absolutely first. So that from the, the start, the uh, thing that really distinguished neoliberalism um, was the search for a new global order that uh, uh, especially the Geneva group of neoliberals associated with Friedrich Hayek set out deliberately to bypass um, democracy, to create a new sort of purely economic global empire, if you like. And I say global, I say purely economic, but, but actually they envisage there being all sorts of international legal institutions that would override nations and national democracy. And they were also very keen on the idea that laws would be mainly made by judges um, rather than by sovereign parliaments. I'm exaggerating a little, but really um, only um, a, 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 a very little. There was a kind of overriding of um, national democracy intended from the outset and the fear here was primarily a fear of socialism and of people 
who want to redistribute economic resources. That was seen as interfering um, with the, the purity of the market. So if we now live in an era where we talk a lot about globalization, um, to some degree, that's not an accident. That's not just something um, historically um, inevitable. Um, that this idea that we need to put the economic first and have international laws that put the economic first is something that people have deliberately pursued. And over the course of time, uh, if not originally, that aim for an international economic empire got fused with a discourse about human rights. And again, the idea that individual rights must be put above um, uh, individual duties or relational solidarity, uh, that has come more and more to dominate. And the idea then that maybe the courts, especially courts in charge of human rights, can override um, collective decisions. And I think that already in that marriage between economic liberty and human rights, um, you've got one example of uh, the next thing that I want to talk about, the peculiarity of the liberal domination of the times in which we live. An awful lot of people by now have noted that ever since the 1970s, we've had the very strange phenomenon that the the political left has won the cultural war. If we think about uh, personal relations and sexuality uh, uh, and, and, and so on, the left has won the cultural war, but the right has won the economic war. Overwhelmingly, um, we've drifted to um, pro-capitalist policies ever since um, that epoch. Now, again, as an awful lot of people have by now said, this makes much more sense if you stop thinking in terms of left and right. And if you say, well, basically, it's the rich that have won. And rich people have always been people, um, or often anyway, have been people, if they're not constrained, who want wealth in order to do just what they like. In other words, um, left-wing cultural liberalism and right-wing economic liberalism are really two halves of the same picture. And uh, they've tended to converge. And actually, if you look at the evidence from quite early on, um, new left cultural liberals started to drift in a more and more um, pro-free market direction. So we've got this combination of um, cultural liberalism and so-called economic conservatism, although economic liberalism would be more the, the right way to understand that. Now, the um, extraordinary thing is that although that combination dominates of left culture, um, right-wing economics, there's an awful lot of evidence that it's the exact opposite of what most people want. Most people are culturally um, really inclined to be quite conservative. They're not intolerant, but they put a very strong value on family, place, inherited tradition, national tradition, sometimes on religious community. On the other hand, they do have an increasing sense that 
the, the current economic setup is very, very unfair. There's increasing inequality, uh, absolutely massive salary um, differentials, uh, an increasing power of, of, of the super rich or unaccountable who uh, uh, go in for tax evasion uh, uh, and so on. And the sense that people are powerless in the face of this um, sort of thing. Um, so we, we, we've got this absolute hegemony of, of liberalism, that which are sort of shadow play, shadow boxing between the left and the right tends to disguise from us. And I think this is one reason why recently we've had such a, a populist reaction against normal left-right politics. But there's another factor here that needs to be um, brought into consideration. And that's the fact that there seems to be a new class divide around education. If you go back 40 years or so ago, um, people, highly educated people, were as divided in their political positions as anybody else. And if anything, they leant towards conservatism. But today that's been completely reversed. Overwhelmingly, people with more advanced education tend towards um, the liberal left. Um, although, once again, if you look into the details, one tends to find that fusion of uh, cultural liberalism with um, economic um, liberalism. So... Um, We've got this this new this new kind of class divide. The, what a lot of people have called um, the rule of the meritocracy, the rule of people who think they have the right to rule because they've got very very high levels of um, educational attainment. And the problem is that sometimes that group of people have not, like an older aristocracy inherited any very strong sense of, of social um, responsibility. Um, and they tend to live in the big cities. Uh, they, if, even if they're not super wealthy themselves, they tend to be serving the super wealthy. They tend to be linked to uh, the new economy, the finance economy, or, or the information economy. And all the evidence is that there's an increasingly divide divide between these so-called what David Goodhart calls anywheres and um, a bigger number of people who are somewheres, who are much more embedded in their localities, in what people sometimes call um, the, the heartlands, and uh, sometimes doing more traditional jobs or, or else in very low-paid service jobs and they tend to get their happiness from a sense of belonging whereas the anywhere more metropolitan people get their sense of happiness and health worth self-worth simply from their sense of um global achievements and and this is as it were transferable anywhere they can travel anywhere uh, and take their self-worth and high valuation um, with them. And th this is not so possible for, for most people. But what is sometimes called the revolt of the elites, somehow um, it seems that increasingly um, 
people who are extremely wealthy or relatively highly wealthy um, are, are disjoined from the mass of the people, no longer have the same sense of, of responsibility um, from them uh, and are often baffled by the attitude of most people and even see most people in Hillary Clinton's words as somehow deplorable. And, and this shows up for example, in attitudes towards immigration, where it's assumed that um, a lot of ordinary people are simply bigots, when in fact, um, because of labor arbitrage and so on, immigration is used um, to exploit people's labor, both the labor of immigrants themselves and the labor of native workers. Whereas um, the, 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 the anywhere people, the people living in the hubs rather than the heartlands, are often enjoying um, the benefit of relatively cheap immigrant labor. Um, people from uh, desperately poor countries much more prepared to put up with anything uh, compared to native labor. So that the, the sort of liberalism that you seem to get about multiculturalism and so on can have um, a more dubious kind of economic um, rationale um, going on um, behind it. So I think for these, this, this set of reasons, because of um, the, the almost deliberate pursuit of, of globalization, um, because of the hidden hegemony uh, of liberalism across both left and right, um, because of the new dividing line, the new class dividing line, um, which, which is education, such that people who feel they're excluded from the knowledge of e economy uh, have become the new um, lower class, if you like. I think for all these three reasons, um, where we've been seeing a huge populist um, reaction, which has shown itself in Eastern Europe, it's shown itself in Italy, it's shown itself in the election of Donald Trump, and of course in this country, it's shown itself with Brexit. Now, would I identify populism with post-liberalism, and can populism be a successful mode of resistance to liberalism? Well, I would suggest not, and for a whole series of reasons. I think, first of all, um, populism compared to old working class-based politics tends to be much more disaggregated. That uh, um, the very kind of exclusions that people are suffering is individuating them. And populism doesn't really overcome that uh, individualization, that people fail to act coherently as groups and the, the goals they're pursuing are perhaps too inchoate. We've um, seen this in the um, case of France, for example, in the Gilets Jaunes. Um, and secondly, I think that the, the link of populism to nationalism, and here I probably dissent um, from quite a number of other people whom I respect and would also call themselves uh, post-liberal. Although um, it, it is important to reassert national identity and national pride and national levels of decision-making, there's a sense in which this can only go so far in um, resisting uh, an economy totally dominated 
by neoliberalism. So that what you tend to find with national populism is that it's often a hybrid between uh, nationalist values and remaining elements of neoliberalism, in particular, um, what economists call fiscal dumping tends to go on. In other words, the only way to sustain your national independence is, is to have a rather deregulated economy um, that will appeal to international investors. And if, on the other hand, you want to have high levels of welfare and so on, then often you're having to go into debt to fund that, and that locks you still more into um, the, the, the global economy. And I also think, for, for, for other reasons, that um, a, a national populism is not has not clearly broken with liberalism. There's a sense in which the nation state is only the lib the individual writ large. In fact, the the rise of the individual and the rise of the modern sovereign nation state have always gone hand in hand. Just um, for for that reason, you know, what value are you celebrating if you celebrate your own nation? Okay, sort of wonderful things that you can't put into words about spiritual traditions and legacies and so on, but it, it can dangerously become just a sort of arbitrary identity thing. And, and this is where I think the religious dimension does come in, that, you know, once upon a time, to be British meant also perhaps to be Protestant, at least also to be Christian, but it was a local version of something nonetheless universal. And I think the reason, one reason why in the modern world nationalism is so dangerous is that it is post-secular. It turns racist very quickly because of the rejection of any link between the local and the universal that religious religion gives, so that you tend to get a religion of the nation as a substitute. And uh, very, very worryingly, if you look at Poland, for example, we're now seeing kind of modes of Catholic fascism, for example, uh, and linkages between uh, nationalism on the one hand and a debased form of religiosity celebrating the nation. We see the same thing in, in Russia and so on. So that I have to say that I'm much warier uh, of this rise of nationalism than some post-liberals would be. So if I'm denying that populism and national populism can be identified as authentically post-liberal, what do I take authentic post-liberalism to mean? Well, very briefly, primarily it's um, a politics that puts human relationality central, uh, not individualism and not collectivism either, not individualism writ large, but precisely our relationality. It's only through our relationship to the past, to other people now, that we can develop as individuals. Um, this is often referred to with the word personalism. I believe in personalism rather than individualism. And personalism stresses the situation, the situatedness of every individual and the importance of relationality for their development. The second key thing I would stress is the notion of flourishing, that we're not just pursuing individual liberty, we're not just pursuing a very basic kind of happiness, 
but we're also trying to work out what the good life is for everybody and we're encouraging people to pursue it. We believe that some goals are more fulfilling than others. At the moment, we're discovering, a lot of us, I think, that actually staying in your locality and noticing nature and walking about is a lot more fulfilling than being a permanent globe-tropping um, consumer. So maybe we need to build our lives more around that. That means there's a collective acceptance of positive ends for human life. Okay, there's an ongoing open debate about what the good life should be. But nonetheless, post-liberal politics, like the ancients, like the medievals, sees politics as fundamentally educative. It's, it's a politics based around the citizen. That means participatory self-government, which it also means a continued mutual education by the citizens where they're trying to educate themselves into the good life. It's not a kind of, well, what you like is what you like kind of attitude that tends to prevail in our um, hyper-liberal um, um, world. The other thing that I think is important, or one other thing, is to try to somehow reshape our elites, to try to remove a culture where you get prestige just because you have a lot of money or a lot of celebrity or a lot of power. We've somehow got to tie power and leadership back to responsibility. And this is not empty idealism. We need the idea of disgrace, that it's disgraceful. Um, to not not to achieve your use your eminent position well that you will only be honoured for receiving it well and this is this is a kind of subtle um, cultural alteration that I think we need to undergo and then there are two other things I'd like to mention also I'm very pleased that Annalise Dodds the shadow vice chancellor has taught started to talk about a new corporatism a new breaking down of the artificial liberal divide between the political and the economic. She's been talking about the need to um, for governments only to support businesses that are going in a socially beneficial direction, that are involving their workers, um, developing um, industrial democracy, pursuing good ecological practices, and not just pursuing profits, but having, trying to manufacture or offer a service that, that, that uh, fulfills a definite social function that d delivers a definite social good. And I think if you do that, as we've already seen in relation to COVID-19 with the government, once again, talking to businesses and the unions, if businesses do that, then it becomes more legitimate for them to be in turn involved in the political process. We don't just live in places. The representation only of places is not democratically logical. It makes sense also to um, democratically represent vocations um, uh, and what we do at work if those things are also themselves to a degree democratically organized. And then the final thing that I want to say reverts to my worry um, about excessive nationalism. I think, yes, part of the 
reaction against liberal globalization is to return to uh, think putting decision making at local, regional, and at national levels. But I don't think that reverting to a situation of liberal international anarchy, um, where the, the nation is is the final sort of democratic political stopping point, I don't think that's going to work because the whole project, liberal, neoliberal project we're up against, is this attempt to have international rule um, through um, the economy. And even though um, it, it's true that you've got a phenomenon like Trump, but it, it's only semi-protectionist. In, in fact, in the end, he's still using the United States as a base for a still more anarchic, still more piratical mode um, of, of economic practice. He's trying to escape from the, in, the international legal economic um, framework, but only in favor of, if you like, still more anarchy. So that without some kind of international political dimension, we're still dominated by, by the global economy, or else we're dominated by very big nations like China or the United States that are fusing capitalism with with technocracy uh, and bureaucracy and so on um, to create an even more terrible kind of managerialism. So the final thing I, I would like to say is, is post-liberalism going to happen? I don't know, probably not. We'll probably stagger on with what what Ross Duha um, calls a decadent mode of liberalism. Not very impressive, but it staggers on. Or else we'll see a terrible new hybrid between um, capitalism and bureaucracy and, and technocracy of the kind that China um, represents. But I think if we're not going to have those um, pretty dreadful things, then trying to craft a, a post-liberal alternative is the way forward. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.